Thank you, Aaron. And thank you, choir. You know, Paul's in, as we've studied 1 Corinthians, talking about unity in the church. And we come to a time of corporate worship. There are a lot of issues going on in Corinth, obviously, with, with corporate worship. But as I looked at the choir, um, beautiful music. But you know, as you look at the faces around there, you see men and women who love the Lord. I serve with these people on committees, uh, in social events, in golf, and other things, and they love Christ, and that's what's the neat thing about the church. You know, when Aaron called, and uh, I mean, when Nathan called and asked uh, that he was going to be out, gave me three weeks option, uh, and asked me to preach, I had immediately two thoughts. One, I've only done this once before, and as my, my, my brothers and sisters in crisis have reminded me, the first time I did it, right, a strange man came in the building came through the vestibule and walked up to this Bible right there in the middle of the sermon and just started reading, very distracted. So, so I've asked some of my, I, I have placed friends strategically throughout this building. So if you have the, some of the similar ideas, they've got my back this morning. So don't, don't think about it. The, the second thing I thought about, I'm not a preacher. I, I'm not worthy of standing and filling this pulpit for Nathan. And that's probably a thought that would occur to a lot of us. And it's interesting because God directed me to 1 Corinthians right here in this letter, 117, and Paul was trying to defend himself, but Paul said, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom. So I can relate to Paul. You may not hear words of eloquent wisdom. I'm not a preacher. All my points don't start with the same letter. I tried, but I gave up. So, um, but let me give you my qualifications. I love the Lord God with all my heart. And at the age of nine, I walked the aisle. I was brought up in a Christian home by faithful parents. And, I, and my 90-year-old mother may be watching today. Thank you, Mom, from Jacksonville, Florida. But what, what I like to say is at nine, all the Bible school, the vacation Bible school, these holiday trips to church camps, incredible life lessons for me. But at nine, I realized that Christ was calling me to a personal relationship. So I, I kind of say I turned my religion into a relationship. And it's been incredible over 50 years walking with God and seeing what he's done. Second qualification, I love the word of God. I believe the word of God and third, I love Woodmont Baptist Church. We've been here since 2000, and I love our pastor, Nathan. And I'm thankful. Let me just give a quick advertisement. I'm thankful for a, a pastor who preaches unashamedly the word of God, the truth of God, right? And this expository preaching forces us to go verse by verse through the scripture. And thank goodness um, it's the Holy Spirit that teaches us and not me. Matter of fact, I was telling Rachel that... Uh, when Nathan and I settled in on the date, it was moving around, so I said, okay, I'll do the first Sunday, which is today. Then I looked up the passage, and I, and I read 1 Corinthians 10, verses 26, and then I got to chapter 11, and I said, hmm, this is some pretty tough stuff. And so I opened my commentary. This is literally the first sentence I read in my commentary. And I quote, 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16 has some features that make it the most difficult and controversial passage in the entire Bible. <laughs> Thanks, Nathan, I appreciate this. 
he leaves town and leaves me, but I'm just as a, you know, teaching, I realize teaching Sunday school is one thing, and I love this format where we're teaching the Word of God, and then we come in here, and we learn it again, right? We study it at home, we come in our Bible groups, life group, and discuss what we've read and clarify, and, and we as teachers can mess it up, right? Because I always say, look, we've got this so messed up, we're going to go in the auditorium, and Nathan's just going to straighten this out for us. So it's a little... My, my fellow teachers, when I was walking in here, thanks, Marcus, said, oh, this is a tough passage. We had a real good, interesting discussion in Sunday school. So, look, let's, for that word, I, I love these songs this morning, and I think, I'm thankful for uh, this song, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me. So let's pray real quick that the Lord will teach us this morning. Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for that it's truth. Even though it's sometimes counter or cultural and sometimes hard for us to understand, I'm thankful that the Holy Spirit will give us wisdom and guidance and insight. And Father, put me aside and teach us this morning through your Holy Spirit. We ask in your son's precious name, amen. We've made our way to the 10th chapter of 1 Corinthians. We've been following Paul with this letter. Paul wrote this letter, if you recall, to the church at Corinth. He loved this church. Um, he founded it in 50 AD. Uh, there was a revival that broke out. This was a tough city, right? Corinth was a tough place. And he spread the gospel there, and he was really excited about these young Christians who were grown in Christ. He'd gotten word from the house of Chloe that things were not going that well. Matter of fact, there was a lot of spiritual problems, serious spiritual and moral problems that were going on in Corinth at the time. And so when Paul was in Ephesus, he wrote to them. Nathan explained all this to us that, that the first letter that was written was lost. We don't have. So what we're studying is 1 Corinthians is actually his second letter that he wrote to them. We also know that the church wrote to Paul and had a lot of, they were confused about a lot of things. If you haven't been studying with us, just a real quick, I've got an update um, to bring us up to speed. In the first four chapters, he was addressing the church members that were grumbling against Paul. Obviously, Paul, and his, as an apostle, was under attack in many of these cities, right? His, his credentials were being questioned. And they were siding with, I, I like Apollos. He's a tall, handsome, dark, and handsome, and he was a lot better orator than Paul was, apparently. So some people were siding with Apollos and others. There was divisions that were breaking out because they were following these preachers and arguing about this. In chapter 5, we saw that the unbelievable sexual sin and sexual immorality that they were dealing with in Corinth. In chapter 6, we came and saw that they were suing each other and dragging their problems in front of the courts, right, uh, in publics and airing their disagreements. In chapter 7, it turns a little bit and it starts now concerning the matters about which you wrote me. So apparently in starting in 7, in these chapters, Paul begins to address, after addressing these general problems, some of the specific questions they had. Questions about marriage, questions about divorce, questions about singleness, uh, and about sexual immorality and sex in general. So if you, if you think the Bible's dull, go back to chapter 7 and read some of the, these instructions that Paul were giving them. And then in verses, in chapters 8 through 10, and we're picking this up, this conversation, Paul has been addressing the issue 
about our Christian freedoms, right? So Paul has taught these folks that the gospel of Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ's grace, brings us freedom. And he starts to explain what freedom in Christ means. I think there were new Christians that took, took it too far, right? And we're going to see this in these chapters today. But how can we use our rights and freedom in Christ? Specifically, do I have the right to eat meats that have been offered to idols? We kind of laughed in our Sunday school class. Paul's been going on and on and on about eating meats to idols, right? From chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, talking about this. When you, what is Paul trying to get across in 1 Corinthians? What is, what is he talking about? We've kind of labeled this God's wisdom, and we've used this term a lot, and Paul's used this term a lot, wisdom for the church. Paul describes in this letter, in general, the ways of the world, right? This is what he calls it. Paul says, the ways of the world are drawn from infinite human perspective that are limited by our human experience and tainted by sin. Paul teaches that. That's, that's what he calls the ways of the world, human experiences that, with our perspectives that are limited. And he contrasts that with the way of the word, so Paul says the way of the word is drawn from the perfect character and nature of the infinite God. Are you going to follow the ways of the world? Or are you going to follow the ways of the word? Paul is challenging us, I believe. We get through all this cultural stuff that we'll try to unpack today. But Paul is challenging us even today. Are you going to follow what our society and culture are teaching us or attacking or trying to persuade you or are you going to believe the Word of God? And so the, the, Paul lays that out. I, I think, I mean, Paul explains a lot in the first part of Corinthians that God's foolishness, right, con confounds the wise, and God's weakness confounds the mighty. I'd say amen to that because God, my prayer this week is that God would use the simple, <laughs> and maybe not the wise, to bring the Word of God. This is about studying God's Word. It's powerful. It's not about me. It's about God's Word and what He has to say to us. So in your outline today, I tried to sum up all of what 1 Corinthians is about. And the way I said it was God's wisdom, or God's Word, but God's wisdom applied to worldly problems produces supernatural results. God's wisdom applied to worldly problem produces supernatural results. And I think Paul was really trying to get that across to these Corinthians. They were struggling with this. New church, uh, as you know the city, multicultural, right? You had Romans, you had Greeks, you had Jews. They were all together trying to grow and build this church. And they were struggling with a lot of these issues. A lot of these issues were from the culture that was invading they were allowing to invade inside the church organization and creating a lot of problems. Let's look at today's passage. Um, and in the tradition of Woodmont Baptist Church, let's stand while we read this. If you turn to 1 Corinthians 10th chapter, we're picking up Paul's discussion about idols or uh, meat offered to idols in verse 23. And he says, all things are lawful, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful, 
but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord and the fulfill, fullness thereof. If any one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. For the sake of the one who's informed you and the sake of conscience. I don't mean your conscience, but, but his. For why would my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that which I have given thanks? So whatever you eat or drink and whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or the Greeks or the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do not seek my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of Christ, or imitators of me as I am of Christ. And then Paul gets, goes further and starts talking about these cultural issues that they were dealing with in verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the tradition even as I have delivered them unto you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head covered or uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if her wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her off her hair and shave her head. Let her cover her head. For a man ought to cover, not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God. But a woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither a man created for a woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. What in the heck did Paul throw that in there for? Because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as a woman was made from man, so man now is born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourself. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory for her hair is given to her for a covering. And if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Thank you, Nathan. But this is the word of God. Let's talk about it and unpack this. Thank you. You may be seated. If I, if I threw out to you some names like Jack Nicholas, Tiger Wood, Anna Sorston, what would you think about, right? Golf, right? If I said Martha Ingram, Elon Musk, Oprah Winfrey, you thought you may think of business, billionaires. If I said Tom Hanks, Morgan Freeman, Nicole Kidman, right? Ed, I'm not going to tell a funny story about you and Nicole Kidman, even though I'm, I'm tempted to. What would you think about actors, actresses? Maybe even Carrie Underwood, Keith Urban? I'll throw in there Russell Dickerson, right? Country music star. We... 
immediately we think of these people, names of people who have excelled in their fields, right, and have become, they, they have become awesome achievements and incredible talents in what they do. We, many times we stand in awe of these people. We celebrate as they climb the ladder of success. The process of it, exalting a person for their achievements is to give them glory. That's what we're doing. That is to give them honor and value based on who they are and what they have done. But this scripture that we just read that Paul gives us is kind of the title of our sermon today. Whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. I thought it'd be interesting for us to talk about this term just for a minute about what is the glory of God. And obviously we give these people glory and honor for their achievements. Uh, scripture tells us over and over, I, we, we could spend this whole hour just reading scripture about bringing honor and glory to God. That's the, the Bible talks about that. Matter of fact, here's a freebie from the sermon today. If you're struggling with the question why I'm here, right, the sum of scripture tells us this is your answer. God created you to glorify himself. God created man to glorify himself and that's man's primary purpose in life. So if you're struggling with that, that's a great place to start. What is glory and how do we bring honor and glory to God? Matter of fact, in college we had, and, and Leisha will recognize these nicknames, in college we gave nicknames to everybody. We had Wild Man, we had Willie Lee. Willie Lee was grown up in New York and I went to school at Mercer University in Macon, Georgia, so we gave him a southern name, Willie Lee. And to this day, I still call him Willie Lee. Cool Breeze, Buck. Uh, there was Wampus. Don't even ask what, what that was about. But, you know, we use nicknames. Red, short, you know, whatever. You, you guys know what I'm talking about. If you had a nickname for God, a good one would be glory. That re really, the term glory can sum up who God is. He is the God of glory, Psalm 29.3. Psalm 8.1, the glory is above the heaven. Psalm 72.19, blessed be his glorious name forever, and the whole earth be filled with his glory. This is glory. Now, how is God's glory different than man? When we, we named all these figures that we give honor and glory to. One way it's different, and there's a lot of different ways, but God's glory is intrinsic to him. It is self-defined self-initiated, self-expressed, right? You know what that means? That means, if I said it another way, you don't have to give God glory for him to be glorious. God is glorious. And he asks for our glory. He, only, he demands that we bring him glory and honor. Um, another way that we know that God's glory is different than ours, our glory fades, right? A fast runner slows down. The beauty queen will age and, and even wrinkle, may even get ugly in old age. The actor and the actresses, they struggle, right, as they get older because they don't get the good parts anymore. And the ultimate test is we know our glory as man fades because one day we all die. God, God is different and God's glory, he is eternal. Matter of fact, God is the only one in existence that was there from the very beginning. It kind of blows your mind if you try to understand that. God is the only being existent, not dependent on something outside of himself 
to be himself, for he generates himself by himself with himself. That kind of blows your mind if you think about it, but you know what? That doesn't sound right, but you know what I'm trying to communicate. God's glory is different than ours. If I, the Bible, I'd, I'd love if we had time to go back to Exodus and this interchange between Moses and God. And Moses had seen God, what we would say, Moses has seen God's glory, right? Through the desert, through the incredible works that he did with Pharaoh to free his people from Egypt. These miraculous works and things that God was doing, a pillar by day, a fire by night. It goes on and on and on. The Shekinah glory when he appeared to the people uh, in a tent and dwelt among it goes on and on. And why it's interesting that Moses confronted God at the burning bush. He said, God, show me your glory. I want to see you. I want to see your face. And we know that we cannot look upon God's glory. It is so magnificent. Matter of fact, 2 Timothy or 1 Timothy 6.16 says he dwells in unapproachable light. And, and probably the best analogy I could think of was the sun. Think about the sun. Sun's 93 million miles from Earth. Matter of fact, if you were to fly a plane at 600 miles an hour, it would take you 17 years to get to the sun. If you tried to drive a car, it would take you 200 years to get to the sun. Think about that. And this sun is 93 million miles away, yet it, it, it heats up, right? It maintains our existence 93 miles away, it heats up this whole earth and allows us to, to, to live on it. Matter of fact, if you, if you did drive, you'd get about a million miles from the sun and you'd burn up and disintegrate. There are 185 earths that can fit inside the sun. It's about 83,000 miles around. Think about that. The scripture is telling us that God's glory is like the sun. We, we can't even fathom that. And so the question for us today is if this is, how do we honor and capture God's glory in our lives on a day-to-day -day basis to live out our Christian life as Paul is encouraging these, these uh, new Christians to do? So in your outline today, I've got four questions that we can ask to kind of determine, am I following God's pattern for my life? Am I bringing honor and glory to him? Matter of fact, the Bible doesn't give us answers, right? We want answers to every kind of situation. Can I do this? Can I do this? What is God's will for my life? Is it all right to do this? Is it all right to do this? Scripture addresses a lot of these, but they don't address all of these. So these may be four good questions to ask yourself if you're trying to make decisions to bring glory and honor to God. This first one is, does this build up others? These first verses in 2330, Paul is talking about does the principle of, does this build up others? All things are lawful. This was kind of like our saying today, it is what it is. These Corinthians were going around to saying it's all things lawful. They, and it was giving them license and freedom to do whatever they wanted to do and justify it by the grace of God in this, what, pre, in what Paul had taught them, all things are lawful, right? Why were they so hung up on eating meats to idol? And so if you go back to Corinth, we know that the Greeks and the Romans were polytheistic. We've talked about this in our Sunday school class. They worshiped many gods. That was the culture and the society that they were in. They had a God for everything, a God of war, a God of love, goddess of love, a God of travel, a goddess of justice. It went on and on and on. But the flip side of that is these folks were polydemonistic as well. 
And they thought that there were evil spirits everywhere. They filled the air, right? And it was believed that spirits were constantly trying to invade us. And so one of the reasons that they felt like they needed to sacrifice to their gods all the time was so that they would gain favor with the God, but it would also, through the sacrifice, cleanse the meat for that, that was being used for demonic contamination. It would, it would cleanse that meat for them. So it was, it was their way of saying, right, uh, the evil spirits get away. This has been sacrificed to idols, so I'm good. The priests would go through these sacrifices. Uh, they did really three things. One, they would burn that altar at the altar and give the sacrifice to their gods. The priest, too, they were having so, the, the, the priest was able to keep the leftover as their sustenance, almost kind of as payment for their service as a priest, they would keep the leftover meat. And because they were giving so many sacrifices, because there were so many demons, that there was no way that the priest could keep all of that, so they would take the third portion of that and sell it in the meat market. So it's pretty, it's pretty simple concept. And that was the best meat, right? Because the sacrifice was unblemished, it was the best of the best. Basically, the Solomon's meat market where you would go, right, like Whole Foods to get organic, the best, the best tasting. If somebody came over to your house, you'd go to Solomon's meat market and buy this meat because you wanted only the best. So this was part of their culture. And these new Christians were bringing their culture into the church, and it was causing all kind of divisions and problems. They had a lot of questions they wanted to ask Paul. Could we eat meat? Is it right for Christians to eat meat? Could Christians eat meat that old, the Old Testament law prohibited? The Jews were really confused, right? Because the Leviticus the numbers had laid out these law, what they could and could not. Could Jews eat Christians with, with Gentile Christians? These new folks that were unclean, could Christians eat food that had been sacrificed to idols? Could, they, could we eat food that was given at the temple, right? I grew up going every Sunday to the pagan temple uh, cafeteria, because they had the best meat. We'd eat roast beef on Sunday, right, at the pagan cafeteria. That, that was the thing in their society. Paul addresses that in 8 and 9 and starts to get through the. So Paul has a great answer in chapters 8, 9, and 10. Paul's just going to nail this and drive clarity to the subject, right? And Paul's answer was, it depends. Don't we hate that answer? It depends. I used to hate when my mom and dad... Paul said, if idol food is eaten in the context of idolatrous worship in the pagan temple, no, you can't eat it. Paul kind of says, by the way, you shouldn't even be there in the pagan temple to start with. But Paul said, is it, if it's bought in the meat market without you knowing where it came from, yeah, you can eat it. And then Paul goes further and said, if it's eaten in a private home, then sure, you can eat it, but if it will harm the conscience of anyone present, right, then no, you can't eat it. So this is real clear teaching on Paul. You know, as I read this, I think, in other words, food ain't the issue, is what Paul's saying. It's not about the food. It's about the context, right? The issue is the character and content of the meal taking place. Your witness, your influence, it's, it's not about checking boxes. It's about, matter of fact, be, 
Ben Witherington III wrote, and I thought this was great, it's more about the venue than the menu. And that is so true. Paul is trying to impress upon these Christians, you need to honor God. Paul lived, right? He, he's putting himself as example because he lived a Christ or a cross-centered life. And he had his relationship with God, right? His vertical relationship with God, but he's teaching us that it's not only that. It may be all right for you and you're conscious because you know that all this meat came from God. That's what Paul is saying. God has made everything and he's made it for our enjoyment. And Paul's saying you as a mature Christian may know that, but Paul is also living a cross-centered life and a horizontal relationship. However, you have to live that life and your relationship with God in context of your brothers and sisters in Christ. So it's that horizontal relationship. Freedom, the, the, the principle that he's giving us, one of the principles here is freedom must be balanced by responsibility. So Paul is saying, don't look at your freedom, look at their need. You've got to recognize the people that you're with and the influence that you're having on them, your testimony to them. The second principle he's talking about here is others over self, right? It's the, the Rick Warren book, very first paragraph, it's not about you, it's about God. And so this is the doctrine, the doctrine that Paul is giving us. You know, in sales, they teach you everybody listens and you may have heard this, to the station of W-I-I-F-M. What's in it for me? And that is so true with our human nature, right? Paul teaches us this doctrine of human depravity. He teaches us that our natural inclination is not to put ourselves aside for the benefit of others. But Paul is saying there's a spiritual principle here and that when you give your life to Christ and Christ has given himself and sacrificed himself for you, then, then uh, you need to think about others instead of yourself. The second question Paul is asking in, in this 1031, which is a crux of this lesson, is does this bring glory to God? Whether, so whether you eat or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. John, John Piper wrote a blog that was named, caught my eye, how to drink orange juice to the glory of God. I thought that was an interesting title. I liked it particularly because I love orange juice. But John kind of twists this around. Is it, for believers, is it sin to disobey this biblical command? In other words, if it's true that we're supposed to do everything to the glory of God, is it also true that is it sin to eat and drink or do anything not for the glory of God? That's kind of an interesting thought. And so he, he's almost interjecting that it's sin to leave God out of the everyday ordinary things that we do in life. He basically goes on to say, look, God made the oranges. He made the, he made the orange tree. He, he gave you the ability to drink the orange juice. This is an enjoyment part of God's nature and you should enjoy it. So you give a prayer of thankfulness for God when you drink that orange juice and you're bringing honor to him. But, I, you know, I, I think it's a good point that, that there are things that we do that honor God but in Bible, there's things that we do, which Paul calls sin, which takes away from the glory of God. And this is a, this is a principle Paul is trying to get across to them. Matter of fact, Paul kind of uses the term, it interrupts the glory of God. 
If God is that sun, then our sin is blocking that sun, the warmth and the goodness and the light that God is giving us. So it's an interruption of the glory of God. The third thing question that Paul is saying that we can ask is verse 32 through this 11.1, does this reflect the gospel to others? And Paul is using this in his testimony to give no offense to the Jews, the Greek, or the church, and that covered about everybody. He's basically saying, be an imitator of me. And if you read this 1 Corinthians, Paul is not boasting in and of himself. Because over and over again, like the scripture that I read to you, I am not an eloquent preacher, Paul says. I'm not being called to being baptized people like John the Baptist. I'm called to be faithful, to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ, primarily to the, to the Jews first, but also to the Gentiles. And Paul was faithful to that. So Paul is saying, I'm an imitator of Jesus Christ. And so we could go through scripture after scripture um, to, to look at how do we imitate Christ and what, what was Christ does. And Christ basically, if you look at the first chapter, or John, the 19th chapter, I believe there was an interchange between Jesus and Zacchaeus. And Jesus basically said, I have come to seek and to save those which are lost. Jesus was focused in what he had done. He was our extreme, the supreme example of a person who had his priorities in order, right? You think about it, Luke, Dr. Luke tells us when Jesus was on the cross, he said, it is finished. Well, what was finished? There were still people that were hungry. There were still people that were sick, right? There were people that were ailing and dying and didn't know him. Everybody wasn't saved. What was finished? Jesus was saying, my work is finished. I was obedient to the Father, and my work is finished on the cross. So this brings us to our last question. Does this honor God's design? And the Bible lays out for us, I wish we had more time. We could spend an hour or more on this. And this, now I commend you because you remember me. Paul was commending them for listening to his uh, sermons to what he was teaching them, but also to their traditions. In verse 3, he says, I want, to get, I want you to understand. This is new teaching. He's almost saying this is countercultural, that the head of every man is Christ, the head of, of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And so this, th these are tough passages to unpack. He then goes to apply that principle with head coverings during worship. And obviously, this was culturally relevant for them, right? The difficulty, one of the difficulties with this passage is a lot of people say that it should not use to be, to establish any doctrine or teaching on the role of men and women. A lot of people say that this passage is not culturally, it's culturally bound, and it should not be used to be applied to the 20th century. But I want to go back to my, God has given us this inspired word of God. For some reason, he inspired Paul to write this down and to communicate to us. I believe this is an inspired word of God. I believe that we can go through the culture. It pierces the culture. And God gives us these principles that we can live on a daily basis to bring honor and glory to him. What's the principles here? And, and let, let, let me just, almost as a disclaimer, right? What Paul is not saying, that, that God has designed us to live under an authority. What he is saying, he's designed us to live under authority. 
with him. He's created an order uh, of man and an order for our marriages and an order for our relationships. What Paul is not, what I, what I think Paul is not saying that men are superior to women and they are not greater in worth, they are not greater, or men are not greater in dignity and value. That's obviously an issue in our culture. Matter of fact, the Christian faith, right, we know this, brought freedom and hope to women and where they were in society at the time, and children, slaves. It taught that all people, regardless of race, sex, were equal before their creator and that all believers were one in Jesus Christ. Matter of fact, Galatians 3.28 tells us there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ. And this is the main message that Paul is trying to get across. People have misused and misquoted out of context that Galatians 3.28, that there are no male or female. Paul was saying we are all depraved in nature and we need God. We are dead and have no way of having a relationship with him unless it was for the grace of Jesus Christ. So for that purpose is we are all one. Paul is also saying in scripture that we were created in the image of God, both male and female. In Genesis, the first chapter, he teaches us that. So what is Paul trying to say? He, I, I believe he's trying to say that men and women have separate and unique roles and functions in God's kingdom. He has designed us through God's gracious design as men and as women, and to that, he has assigned roles and responsibility. So then he uses a cultural ex uh, example to them on women wearing veils or not wearing veils or hoods, and men wearing hoods and veils, and women wearing long hair and men wearing short hair. I mean, he goes through this. There was an issue that was going on in Corinth and these, there were people that you could naturally think that were taking their Christian freedom too far. Uh, in that society, women did wear some type of hoods. Paul does not use the term veil here to mean a veil that covers the face. He's talking about a covering of the head or hair, a shawl, and, most, and probably most likely that women in public wore that. One of the reasons, practical reasons they wore that because as we know, the city of Corinth, right? Somebody described Corinth as a modern-day mix between New York City, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas. And there was a lot of things. This was a culturally advanced, educated city. It was the crossroads of the trades. It was a metropolitan city. And they had on the hill the Temple of Aphrodite. There were a th over a 1,000 prostitutes, male and female, that were would invade in the city and ply their trade. One of the ways that they plied their trade and drummed up business was to remove their veils in public, to shave their head. This was an indication the short hair and the no veil is their advertisement. If you ever walk down the street of Las Vegas and people handing you those cards, well, that's our modern day equivalent of the women walking around without a shawl and veil. This was happening in the church and they were letting this into the church, and it was be becoming very distractive. And so there was a couple of things going on. One is a practical advice uh, about differentiating between the women that were honoring God and honoring the authority of men and their husbands by wearing their veil. They were ripping off their veils and say, I can preach and prophesy, I can pray and prophesy in public worship, 
and they were taking it too far and it was being disruptive to the church and the church unity. This was the problem. This was what Paul was addressing. And so he gives some culturally relevant. He does this in three ways. Again, we don't have time to go into a lot of this. The first example that Paul uses in verse three through seven, I want you to understand the Trinity. We're familiar with this example, right? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches this, that they were all given uh, equal, they were all united, right, in their role, their purpose and vision, but they were given different roles and responsibilities. The, the Son had a different role and responsibility than the Father did. The Holy Spirit has different roles and responsibility than the, than the Son did. But we know from Scripture that that was not offensive to Jesus. Jesus is our prime example. I had the, all the authority. He was God, but he did not think it was less of him to fulfill his role. That's why he said at the cross, it is finished. My role was to bring God to man, to become one of you, right? And to sacrifice, somebody had to pay this penalty for sin. Somebody had to do it. And at the creation, Jesus stepped forward and said, I will do it. He willingly gave that up. While he was working, walking on earth, I, you, you can, you read, we've read the New Testament, right? We know he, Jesus had to be frustrated at these 12 guys time and time and again, because I'm God. I mean, what, wouldn't the temptation to say, I'm, I'm just going, I'm God. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to strike you down. But he didn't. He, he, he didn't do anything that the Father did not tell you. He was under the headship of his father. And that's what Paul describes. Paul describes the order of headship to the church. The father is head of Christ. Christ is head of the man and the man is head of the woman. Paul uses an example of redemption to teach us that. The second example he uses here is in verses 8 through 12. He goes back to Genesis and creation. He said, Paul said, think about creation. God created man and out of man he created woman. Paul goes on to say in Genesis that he created both man and woman in the image of God. But he also gave them different roles and responsibility. And there had to be some authority and headship in the family structure. Uh, in an organization, right, in business and organization, we know that. Without a head, right, the organization is going to die, the, or, the, the company or the organization. We also know that from living creature without a head, right? Animals die, we die. So there has to be. Paul is using this example from creation. Um, I, I like to tell people, my, my, I, my mother, my grandmother moved from North Alabama to Central Florida, and one of the things she wanted to do was grow fruit tree. And she grew the biggest lemon tree in the backyard I've ever seen. Literally, she grew lemons that were looked like grapefruit to me, size of grapefruit. And you, and really, the lemon, and from that lemon tree, we used to make the best lemonade when I spend the summers with her. Think about this. The lemonade is the glory of the lemon, right? To me, it was anyway. I like sweet more than sour. The lemonade is the glory of the lemon. It reflects the goodness in every way and brings honor to the lemon by doing its thing, right? And the lemon is the glory of the lemon tree, it's a beautiful tree that she grew, but without the lemon, it wasn't any good. So none of the three are superior or inferior to the other. 
they have different roles. And Paul, I think, is trying to lay this out for us. And he was not talking about equality. He's talking about roles and responsibility. Paul threw in there the angels. Maybe that's another, I'm, I'm going to leave. That's it. so easy topic. I'm going to let Nathan cover that later. So it, it's a strange thing about the angels, but the angels were present at creation, if you think about that. But the angels also, the scripture tells us, are, right? They Remember when we studied Isaiah, we saw the angels, six wings bringing honor and glory to God. That was their purpose. And two of those wings were to cover their eyes because they could not look upon God's glory. Two of them were to cover their feet. But really, the angels are a witness to us on how we're bringing honor to God, even during our worship service, when we're together in corporate worship, and how we live our lives. So Paul is kind of saying, by the way, you're embarrassing us. You're, you're, you're rebelling against God's authority by doing this, and you're embarrassing the angels. The last example Paul gives in 13 through 16 was this, hey, you guys know this about hair, right? Women have long hair, men have short hair. And Paul's saying hair is our honor. And Paul is saying judge for yourself, right? I was, it's interesting, to, if you look into it, hair develops in three stages, formation and growth, stage one. Stage two is resting, and three, stage fallout. And some of us are getting to the fallout stage quicker than others, right? I'm not looking at you, Barry, but uh, we... It's interesting, it is interesting the way God has made us through nature, right? God's giving the men, right, testosterone, which speeds up how we run through those stages. He's given women estrogen that slows the progression of those stages. And it's very rare that women get in stage three. There's, nature just tells us women's hair grows longer and, and, and faster than men's hair. It's interesting that in the Roman and the Greek and the Jewish culture, men didn't wear long hair, except with the Nazarites that took a Nazarite vow. Really, I, I read this week, I thought it was interesting, and I never, never thought about this, but that uh, in, in the only Corinth statues, the Corinthian statues that we've uncovered, it shows men, it does not show men having long hair. The statues did not have long hair, except if they were a slave or they were captives, they did not wear long hair. So they would understand this analogy. So Paul is teaching us, and whatever we do, do to the, to the glory of God. He's trying to get these people at Corinth and using a present-day example that they would understand. Let me just close real quickly about how do we bring the glory of God. Um, you know, in, in the 17th chapter of Luke, Dr. Luke relays a story. You remember this. You guys know the story. Ten lepers who wanted to be healed, they came to Jesus and said, hey, and they begged Jesus, will you heal us, right? And Jesus told them, go see the priest. And so on their way to the priest, all 10 of them were healed. How many of those returned to thank Jesus and to glorify him, right? We know this, one. one only one, and the other nine were too busy, if you think about this, enjoying their blessings in essence, worshiping the creation instead of the creator, they were so busy that, that they did not take time to glorify God. So I think Paul is teaching even us today, don't be like the nine. 
He's saying, look, in everything you do, bring honor and glory to God. And, and the way we do that is the way we build up others, thinking of others instead of yourself. The way we do that is you're laying the gospel, you're preaching the gospel by the way you live your life all the time. And the way you worship God, it's not about you. And you should think about your brothers and sisters in Christ and not distracting them and certainly not tempting them, <laughs> right, during the worship service in the way you dress and the way you look. And there's a lot of analogies today. So uh, may we bring glory and honor to God in everything we do. Let's, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word. We thank you it's been good to share these things the truths that you've given to us. And Father, I'm particularly thankful for the men and women at Woodmont, and particularly the women that are godly, that love you, that can prophesy and pray and encourage us in our faith. And we pray that we can maintain this kind of testimony inside this building and outside this building to bring honor and glory to you. We ask these things in your son's precious name. Amen. We're going to have a time, and Rachel's going to come. Uh, if you want to join Woodmont Baptist Church, if you don't have a church home, if you want to uh, give your life to Christ and turn your religion into a relationship, uh, we'll, we'll be down here to accept you and do that. And we'll sing. Aaron, lead us.